0: Yeah, it's like you're you're one of my my good movie chatters. And I think if you see me on social media and you don't know what my profession is, you might think I just talk about movies, um, which is I like movies. So I, t- I, t- I kind of made the choice like a few years ago. Like at one point I was like, maybe I should just like only talk about data stuff. And it's like I was like, oh, well, you know, it, it's like you sort of go down like a dark rabbit hole of like online influencer thought where you're like, Well, I only make so many of them. So should I just basically be hunting down articles to reshare? And then it's like very quickly you see like, oh, that's like the LinkedIn dark side path versus the Twitter dark side path versus like there's there's a there's a bad version of all of these. And I was like, you know, it's like I don't even like that. Why would I ever do that? Like just so that I'm producing something so i was like you know what i do like talking about i like talking about movies a lot so i'm gonna do that and if people are down for that they're gonna have a good time and if not they'll they'll ignore me or block me and that's fine too
1: yeah when i was creating this outdated persona on twitter i did make a conscious effort to keep it data but as i've you know as evolved you know i've start slipping in other things that I like or I feel it's important to share with everyone. So I totally understand what you mean.
0: You kind of have to make a choice like but, how, what's, you know, everyone is making some choice in cultivating their persona that they're putting out into the world. Right. Like some people are just yeah. all id. Like it's, it's just like they're, they're just responding to stuff all the time and, <laughs> and those, yeah. and oftentimes like that can kind of be the thing that makes the internet a crappy place where people just see something and then just immediately respond to however they're feeling in the moment. And that's what creates so much of the chaos and friction.
1: Yeah, I'm definitely highly curated. I mean, also having a marketing background. So, I mean, you can still be authentic. You just, you're just you yeah. just curating what you want to do just in case some people feel like you're not being, you're not keeping it real. You are, you're just, I mean, like you said, there's a dark side to everything. But, you know, that is, you know, curating what you put out there. I think more people should subscribe to that.
0: <laughs> I mean, 100%. Like, I, honestly, like, about the only darkness that I put out into social media is uh, when I'm critiquing sort of movie release strategy and stuff, and it's like, well, that's not going to serve you well, like.
1: No, <laughs> <laughs> well, you're good to talk to about movies. There was actually a question I meant to share with you on Twitter because I, I, I had come across it. Like, they have, so Tom Cruise got the title for best um, movie star of all time because of all the movies he's put out and the person who shared it I forget who shared it but the person who did share that you know was like she nuanced it she was like you know there is a difference between being a movie star and an actor just like an entertainer and a singer or you know a performer so but she says you know you know how many people have put out more movies than Tom Cruise has in terms of that so i'm looking at your face and you're just like i'm gonna be polite because alan's my host (laughs) i mean i'm sorry your guest but you can i totally want to hear your opinion on this because i didn't ever say that i necessarily agreed i you know but she nuanced actor versus movie star i'm there um but is he the best movie star action movie star maybe i don't know I mean, I think
0: think? I think you can make a solid argument there. Like, I think, you know, where whatever your position is on that, like um, Tom Cruise, I think his his key defining attribute that separates him from so many other people is it's not his charisma. It's you know, he's he's got some riz, but that's not the deal. The deal is Tom Cruise works harder than anyone like Mm -hmm. he's just out there busting it every day and like it shows and it's like i mean 61 and he's still doing that tcr tom cruise run where he's got like the upper torso totally immobilized and those legs are just pumping and you see him producing like a new movie every single year and i mean you can watch mission impossible fallout and you can actually see the moment where he breaks his ankle in that movie like this guy this guy is working it yeah there's there's a he they had to shut down production for three months because he he likes to do his own stunts. And there's right. a part where he jumps to a building rooftop and he, you know, he's hanging off the edge and he climbs up. And you can see when he takes his first couple steps that something's not right. You can actually see the moment on film when Tom Cruise shattered his ankle. Um, but, yeah, it's like beyond I've the fact.
1: Fallout. I've seen Fallout. Is that the one where the is that the one with the guy from Superman? Yeah. It?
0: Yeah, it's the one with Henry Cavill, and uh, there's a rooftop chase where he he makes a jump to a building, and you can see, like, oh, so that's the moment they shut down production for three months. And also, like, even on the the behind-the-scenes stuff with Tom Cruise, like, love it or hate it, you can see how driven he is to get movies made, like, either it being... You know him doing his own stunts and screwing up the production when he breaks his ankle like they're like dude that's why we have stunt people if a stunt pe- person broke his ankle it sucks he's still a person but the movie doesn't stop But like when Tom Cruise breaks his ankle the movie stops. And then during covid when they were filming I guess the last mission impossible there was that notable onset freak out where he was like yelling at people about wearing masks. And he's like, they will shut us down like they, this movie will get shut down if you guys don't follow the protocols like like <laughs> but like let's do it like let's get this movie made. I mean, yeah, it's like I, you can you can argue that um, I, I obviously like Top Gun Maverick. I think people think I like it a lot more than I do. I think it's a, a really fun movie, but it's not like my favorite movie of all time by any stretch of the imagination. But I think that movie brought people back to movie theaters in a way that other movies had not succeeded in the sort of you know, returning from COVID era, like I went to see that movie on the biggest screen in the metro area. Every seat was full. I was sitting next to like an 85 year old grandma, like she was there to watch that movie, like everyone came out to see that movie. And it's like, it's rare when, you know, with sort of media these days, there's just so much of it that unlike in previous ages, where like, even like as late as the 2000s, like Lost might have had 16 million viewers or something, which I'm probably exaggerating. That's probably wrong. Nowadays, there's just so many things that if something had three million viewers, that's considered like culturally significant. It's because we're also scattered and we're all there's so many things to see that there's not many things that are in common. But when you have like big releases like that, like Barbie, was probably experiencing that this past weekend. Like Barbie, like really put butts in seats this weekend.
1: Um, yeah, I, I have it. Yeah, I mean, back to the Tom Cruise, like the Top Gun Maverick. Yeah, I heard that was really good. I need to put I need to watch it. But yeah, I think Barbie is becoming a sensation, which is interesting.
0: <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it'll be interesting to see if Barbie has like staying power. Like, is it is it a single weekend and then it drops off? Is it does it, you know, does, it does it have any kind of cultural impact long term? Because obviously there's been like probably a half a billion dollars worth of marketing behind that movie, like conservatively, like. They're building dream houses. They're putting pink Tardises in downtown London. Like Warner Brothers and Mattel went so hard at marketing that movie, which based on, you know, sort of the reviews and the summaries of what it's actually about, you would not guess looking at the trailer. The trailer makes it look like a lot more like sort of cotton candy fluff, which is there, but like, it's sort of, it's probably closer to like a Truman show or or something like that. It's it's era being John Malkovich, like it's a, weird movie that's marketed as a it's barbie. and it's like oh yeah it's it's that's barbie but it's like she's going on a journey that you're not you're not expecting based on the trailer
1: <laughs> i got a little tease about that then also because of the so many different iterations of barbies that are like you see in the marketing and you're right every company has latched on To that movie as far as partnerships and you know it is a brand that's lasted you know for better or for worse um it does seem like they're trying to like add a little bit more consciousness to the brand um but yeah i mean i think it's going to be in cessation for better for (laughs) i I
0: think barbie's an interesting case and this might be like i'm a guy i didn't grow up playing with barbies so my perspective could be skewed here but barbie herself doesn't actually feel like a character she feels like an avatar for the girl playing with barbie so like Mm -hmm. if you're a boy and you're playing with like i don't know whatever age you're at at, at transformers masters of the universe batman pick your thing yeah you're like i'm going to be batman but watching my girls play with barbies and dolls and stuff like that barbie becomes them you know it's like And this, my perspective could be totally wrong. I could be basing it on that. But it's like, when I tried to define, like, who is Barbie? I'm like, I'm not sure who Barbie is. Barbie's kind of everything. Like, she's had, like, I looked it up yesterday. She's had 240 different jobs. You know, all these things. Like, she... she
1: Oh, someone beat me? Someone has beat me in a number of jobs? Okay, good. She beat you.
0: Barbie beat you. Like, (laughs) sorry, Alan. Barbie's the ultimate Chad. She shut you down.
1: (laughs) Okay. I guess i'm just ken okay
0: (laughs) right it's it's like i i it's i but to be i mean it's not i'm not saying this is like a female exclusive thing because like i feel like mickey mouse is the same thing like what's mickey mouse uh, he's just like a blank slate mickey mouse is whatever costume you put on him or um uh, mario for that matter mario doesn't like what does mario do like i don't know he like jumps on things it's like there's a lot of characters that aren't actually characters they're just sort of an avatar for the person that's going to be interacting with them or playing with them
1: yeah i agree i think you know because my you know Spider the Spider-Verse and the, the recent one the recent franchise I think it's almost doing the same thing like anyone could be Spider-Man type deal it's not in the same it's not being presented oh see I wanted I have this book are you the one who put that on my radar
0: probably I, so I just I held up the Spider-Man like across the Spider-Verse art of the movie book um yeah yes. I think I think you're yeah go on Continue in your thought
1: oh no no I think you're the one who put that book on my radar I meant to buy that but yes I feel like barbie's presenting itself differently than that but i think it's the same thing where it's like maybe this is you know again just talking with a wide swipe or why whatever i think like most you know teenage boys probably are like i can be spider-man but you know what that's wrong because they do have gwen so i think anyone can be they're having anyone who can feel like they can be a spider Person, spider, spider verse, so
0: you know it's i was thinking about that okay so uh, you know we're obviously we haven't talked about data once so far and if you've got a problem with that this probably is going to be no, the I mean, we, we want to get some... there we're gonna get there but
1: we, we get have, there we got a segue but this is how much gonna get there. we're easing in much... Zach and I, yes.
0: the interesting thing about spider-verse and i loved both movies so far like i they they seriously are like actually like in terms of superhero movies like up there in terms of some of the absolute best and in terms of some, some of the best animation movies you could see um but one of the interesting things is that i think it becomes a question and the second movie that's not in the first is what does spider-man mean at this point like there's so many different like spider like there's spider dinosaur there's spider you know there's like (laughs) spider Spider punks intro is him throwing molotov cocktails at police cars and (laughs) it's like you know you've got such a wide spectrum of what spider-man means at a certain point it's like the define the relation talk when you're dating someone like are we are we like boyfriend girlfriend like what are we it's like what do we mean by spider-man and it's it's interesting because marvel in the past did try to create alternate Spider-Man back in the mid-90s. They did a Spider-Man the Clone saga. And actually, one of those characters is in Spider-Verse. He's the Scarlet Spider, the guy who's got the like grim, dark internal dialogue that you hear in the movie. Oh. He's wearing like the, the torn-up hoodie. It's the plot line was that there was an older Spider-Man story where someone tried to clone Spider-Man and it turned out the clone didn't work out. It was like this villain called the Jackal. Well, in the 90s, they revealed that the Spider-Man we've been reading for the past 30 years is actually that clone. Like the real (laughs) Spider-Man has, has been off here to the side and he he's finally like coming out of like whatever coma he was in or whatever. And he, he's like, okay, you know, I'd like to re take my life back. Um, so you now we're pushing aside the original Spider-Man to bring in this other Spider-Man, um, Spider-Man retired. Um, then, It turned out, oh no, we were wrong all along. The one coming back is the clone. We tricked you. He's going to go by the name Ben Riley and go by the Scarlet spot. And it like this bait and switch back and forth twice turned off fans so much that Marvel sales tanked for like a while. Like, and this is during the speculation age where people bought comics just because they thought they were going to be worth something. So, um, so that had been done previously. And then, like, the Miles Morales execution of this was so much better that it's like, yeah, people were actually really cool with having another Spider-Man, as long as it wasn't done in such a way that the original Spider-Man was, like, thrown under the bus, you know?
1: Right. And he's not. He's there. And so, yeah, it's just, yeah. And no spoilers, but, I mean, this second one, definitely, there was definitely a twist in there that was just like, wow
0: oh yeah it's 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 a really fun ride and like i would love to see it again at theaters but that's unlikely side note okay so miles morales okay so his dad's name is jeff right Right. do you know his dad's last name because it's not morales
1: it's not it's um that was a thing because like it sounds like his mom you know i don't know her I don't know. If her last name is Morales, but she seems to be the one in the movie. Her last who, name is
0: Morales. Yes. Oh,
1: her last name is Morales. Okay. Yes, but his um, his dad's name is not. That can, I was reading about that in the comments, and people are trying to understand.
0: This is going to blow your mind, and you're not going to believe me. Okay, so this, this like Miles Morales was, was made in like 2009 by Brian Michael Bendis, who was one of Marvel's biggest writers. Um, he was created in the ultimate universe so the ultimate universe was marvel's attempt to create accessibility for readers because when you're oh, dealing with 60 years of back history it's really difficult for anyone to feel comfortable picking just picking it up so they did a separate universe where it's like a hard reset like what if these characters start in the present day and they had like 115 issues of peter parker spider-man and they died it's like they literally straight up killed him and miles morales came in as like sort of oh wow like i've I feel like I've got to help carry on this legacy. And it was really well done. It was really great. Miles Morales's dad's name is Jefferson Davis. I'm not making that up.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Like, and, and if I'm not mistaken, and I don't know how this was made, I believe Jefferson Davis was like the leader of the Confederacy? Like, it's...
1: Yes, he was. <laughs>
0: which, like, I mean, and it's like, Brian Michael Bendis is like a very socially conscious nice Jewish man living in Portland and somehow when he creates Miles Morales his dad ends up named Jefferson Davis like I don't know how I don't know why but it's I bet it's one of those things that they would do anything to undo
1: yeah I just don't um (laughs) yeah I don't yeah I don't get that and then I know like a lot of people are asking like why is his last name different from his dad's name and yeah culturally and yeah so it's just yeah it's interesting
0: what i thought was interesting was that there's a blue beetle movie coming up in august so this is i guess like i'm a big comic nerd as you probably realize this is probably chaotically the third character that's played blue beetle if not more than that but it's uh the character's name is jaime reyes uh he's he's a hispanic and it's played by the uh the actor that was um the lead on cobra kai so i'm blanking on his name The really great, really great, great kid, really great actor. The irony is a lot of the marketing in that movie has centered around like, look, for the first time, Hispanic superhero. I'm like, you had Miles Morales earlier this summer in the second largest movie of the year. Like (laughs) his last name is Morales. This wasn't hard.
1: No. And I guess maybe I don't know. Are they doing that because he's animated? But I don't know. uh, Yeah. But yeah, you're right. And a lot of people sometimes don't always make that crossover connection, but yeah, I mean, like you have Miles Morales, and yeah, that's interesting.
0: <laughs> but yeah, it's like that was a that was a big part of that that character's sort of like that differentiated him so much from Peter Parker is that he's biracial and he's he's from the Bronx, he's from a different part of town, he's like had different lived experiences and come up in a different background.
1: I think he's from Brooklyn.
0: Is yeah. he? He's from Brooklyn, right? Peter's from Queens.
1: Yeah, Peter's from Queens. Miles is from Brooklyn. Yeah, you gotta be careful with the boroughs.
0: You should know. I mean, you should know all this. Like you're
1: Yes, you gotta be careful with the Burroughs. He's from Brooklyn. Uh, like that's so... the New Yorker, like I don't
0: I don't wanna miss.
1: <laughs> yeah. But I yeah, that's why I was trying to remember why would he think the Bronx? And I'm trying to remember, no, it's Brooklyn, because I thought it was the Bronx when the movie was first opening, but then I just saw the streets. And I'm like, no, it's you're Brooklyn. you're right. Yeah. But Peter Parker's always been from Queens, so yes. so
0: having having talked about All of our pop culture nonsense, like obviously, that's something you love a lot. Like,
1: yeah, you need to escape. We gotta escape data sometimes. And this podcast is data plus love, so we started with the love first. Start with the love. Not that we don't love data, but you know, we just want to, you know, talk about some of the other things that you and I talk about sometimes over Twitter. So,
0: yeah, and it's, uh, you know, it's good to talk about movies because I I can talk about movies and data, and one of the big data points about movies is that. Up until this past weekend with the Barbenheimer explosion, movies have been hurting big time. Like, there have been several what were supposed to have been really large releases that dramatically underperformed. Um, So, among those, uh, honestly, at this point, it would be hard to name them all, but there have been Indiana Jones dramatically underperformed. It's going to lose 200 to 300 million dollars based on what they projected. Little Mermaid underperformed, but not as dramatically. Um, the Pixar's latest release. Actually, it's crazy. All these things I've named so far have been Disney productions, oh, but it's not the exclusive.
1: The mermaid is movie.
0: Oh, the- no, that's like the teenage Kraken movie. That that was like a uh, counter programming to that. That underperformed. Uh, I think most people don't even know it exists. Um, elemental elemental had the lowest opening oh, for right. a Pixar movie since the original Toy Story. Wow. So Disney at this point has possibly lost as much of a as a billion dollars this year on their various productions underperforming. Wow. Warner the- Brothers took a huge bath with The Flash. So the Flash was in production since 2015, came out and made like less movie that less money than The Sound of Freedom, uh, which Disney owned. <laughs> and then didn't release and then was bought from them and released and has made over a hundred million dollars so ironically had they released that it might have performed better than some of their other releases but who would have known but it's like it's crazy the flash in production for like what eight seven eight years like went through so many rewrites so many like so many director changes releases they market the entire thing off of michael keaton because they can't market off of Ezra Miller because if you look Google Ezra Miller too much you find out that Ezra has a habit of breaking into people's houses and like assaulting them or choke-slamming pregnant women in bars and it's like you can't really sell your superhero movie on that so they're just like oh Michael Keaton wall-to-wall wall. and then they release it and it flops big time and the crazy thing is the enthusiasm gap was so different because online there was a huge reaction to the Flash major major hype Lots of basically lots of shares, lots of interactions. You would assume based on that, that that's going to put butts in seats. Did not at all. Barbenheimer, on the other hand, both Barbie and Oppenheimer performed really well this past weekend. Obviously, Barbie performed much wider because it had broader appeal and was PG-13 and Oppenheimer, let's face it, is a dad movie. I'm going to see Oppenheimer tonight. (laughs) I'm not looking. The crazy thing is I'm not looking forward to seeing Oppenheimer. It's going to be a major bummer but it's going to be an experience
1: yeah that's an inter- that movie has gotten i've seen some controversy around it actually i haven't read enough into the controversy but i know enough to know why some people do not see it as this great thing to celebrate um but yeah it's an inter- it's kind of like um you talk about dad movies and i remember my dad went to see um he didn't take me i may not have been around he took my brother they went to see the movie oh my gosh Pearl Harbor Yeah, my dad was in the military so yeah so he saw that and it wasn't like he was gung-ho about it my dad was always just a military buff and so they went and they saw that my brother and my cousin they saw oh they must have gone away and they saw it together yeah so but yeah i'm assuming this is overheimer is similar in the fact that it's a historical time period that people want to visit and they've probably it sounds like they've also added a little bit more of story to know um really great actors in it and um but yeah i don't know the numbers for that movie did it do really well
0: it made i think 85 million on its opening weekend which um which was pretty good for i mean it's an R rated movie so like it beat John Wick 4's opening weekend which was also an R rated uh movie um although i think John Wick probably had a slightly lesser budget i mean uh, Christopher Nolan makes prestige movies on a scale that we we don't get nowadays like obviously you've got you've got some visionaries out there like Greta Gerwig releasing a movie the same weekend you've got uh Quentin Tarantino but like the closest thing that Nolan compares to is like a Stanley Kubrick which i know is like a very uh like it's really hard to say someone compares to stanley kubrick but his ethos and how he makes movies and like the kind of movies he likes to select and the stories he likes to tell he creates very ambitious stories that sometimes he can land and sometimes he can't and sometimes he doesn't know how to mix the sound correctly but at, at the very least if you go to see a christopher nolan movie you saw a movie by someone who swings for the fences every single time like so yeah, you, you I know
1: inception. I loved Inception.
0: Yeah. I mean, have <laughs> you seen
1: Tenet? I did not, you know, I started watching it and I just I didn't ha- I couldn't fully get into it. It was also because I was probably tired, but I hear Tenet kind of it's kind of in that same Inception realm, but it's yeah. a little bit more confusing than Inception. I mean, people still talk about Inception to this day, like that concept of being a dream within a dream and you know and of course we can't forget the dark knight which i don't think there's i mean the dark knight to me has is the most that's probably come to oscar worthy type so that was one of the ones that stepped into the realm of oscar worthiness as far as superhero movies were concerned and you know there's been a few with the marvel universe like you know i feel black panther definitely and there's another one um There's some, I can't think of them, but there's been a few Marvel movies that kind of stepped into that realm, but Dark Knight to me still, that whole trilogy, that still kind of, you know, stays in that realm for me. Like, you know, it's one of the top movies. It was the first and to me, and also one of the top movies that kind of in that Oscar type realm
0: it's the interesting thing about the Dark Knight was it brought a level of tension I haven't felt hadn't felt in the theater in like something that wasn't like explicitly a horror a thriller like ever before I mean like it's a superhero movie like and in superhero movies we know there's a lot that's that's not on the table like you're not really going to kill the hero like these are billion dollar IPS like, you know, they usually wipe the villain off at the end of the. It's like ah, that we're never going to see them again. You know, it's like there's a lot you expect out of it, and the level of tension throughout the entire movie, and sort of the, like the Joker's inherent un- unpredictability and capacity for cruelty, and the fact that the score on Zimmer um, did something very unique with the Joker's theme which you might not even notice if you're watching it, but like much like in Jaws, when Steven Spielberg couldn't get the shark to work, like he had planned a lot more shots with the shark, but it broke down all the time. And mm. uh, he was ha- he, John Williams was composing and uh, John Williams was like, okay, I've got an idea for the theme. It's like a dun, 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 dun. And Spielberg's like, what, what is that? Like, I was expecting a lot more. And like, John's like, that's your shark. Like, that's like, like this building tension of this theme is the shark it's unseen it's beneath the surface when's it going to happen and it's like the joker's theme is like that in the dark night because they're like this little like this building like almost like you're just working a violin string in like the most out of pitch way that builds mm-hmm. and builds and builds throughout scenes to let you know something's coming you don't know what it is you don't know when it's going to get here but you're not going to like it when it arrives
1: yeah the batman that one is also surprisingly was very good you know i was like do we need another batman movie but that one actually was surprising surprisingly good
0: it's also one of the rare cases where you see growth in a superhero throughout a movie because uh i mean the batman is done really masterfully in the sense that the special effects aren't noticeable so like much like Christopher Nolan likes to do everything practical. Matt Reeves didn't do everything practical, but he does it in such a way that the special effects are very discreet and you don't typically notice them. There's rooftop shots that are done in volume where they've got the giant LED screens behind them and stuff. So they try to do everything very subtly. But the interesting yeah. thing about the Batman is, you know, throughout the movie, especially the first part, it's like, you know, they do a play on the Michael Keaton, like, who are you? I'm Batman. It says, he says, I'm vengeance. And he's, it's a very... young man's feeling on what you should be bringing into the world it's like he's seen evil he wants to correct that and he thinks the best way to do that is just bring the pain as much as he can and towards the second half of the movie towards the end he sees how normal people react to him and it's like he's terrifying it's like he's created himself into a monster and he realizes you can't just be vengeance like you can't just be the personified force of retribution because that's not pouring good back into the world either.
1: Yeah, no. Yeah, Yeah. I just yeah, I just loved it. I mean, we'll see what the sequel's like, but no, I definitely lo- enjoyed it. And, you know, people talking about Catwoman having a, spin- a spinoff. I think Catwoman does deserve to have her own movie. You know, we'll see.
0: If, if everyone can wash the taste out of the, the really, really bad Halle Berry Catwoman out of their mouths.
1: Yes, yes, yes. That's what I was going to say. You know, we definitely need to. I think Zoe um, Kravitz, you know, brought some redemption to the Catwoman role. but We'll see. Actually, I loved, um, oh my gosh, what's her name? Anne Hathaway's version of Catwoman as well.
0: Both so. were really grounded and both never explicitly call her Catwoman, which is interesting. They're both like. Catwoman as a thief. It's not a identity. It's more of it's purely functional versus yeah. Batman where it's an intentional choice. Yeah. So let's talk. Okay. So we were talking about Tom Cruise having the ultimate work ethic. So you're you, what what don't you do? Right. Like you're you're <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're a co-founder of B data lit. You're on the data DLC advisory board. You've got yeah. the Dubois challenge or is it the Dubois challenge? Like I've heard it pronounced Dubois. both ways.
1: He actually Dubois wants it. He preferred it to be called Dubois. So. Good I've, to know. Yeah, I've interchanged it early on. And then Anthony, who's on the on the uh, Dubois, uh, uh, Dubois challenge with me, he was like, it's Dubois. I said, okay. <laughs> and then I did do some reading um, just from research. And I did find out he did state explicitly he, he wanted it to be called Dubois. So
0: easy enough, right? Like it's great when someone tells you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've definitely had my hands in a lot of things. I was thinking about that the other day. So, um what don't I do? Um well, I I don't know. I, I I'm not a farmer yet or <laughs> so oh yeah. I've I've dabbled in urban farming <laughs> a while back, but Oh uh, yeah, I'm not a farmer. Um I'm not a professional chef, so that's some things. I'm not a construction worker. So <laughs> I didn't serve in the military. So.
0: Well, I mean, it's it's it seems like you've got a motor on you and you don't like to not be hustling. I mean, when I see all the stuff you're involved in with, you know, different organizations, you're on boards, you're cre- essentially creating challenges. I mean, you've got blogs out there, you've got comics, you've got data visualizations like or uh, is it like, what is it? Do you just have a creative motor? Is it just you don't like to sit still? What is it?
1: Um, I think what really started it was I was just looking to give back. So I had been in a corporate career for a, a very long time, about six years ago. And I had some personal things take place, like I lost my dad. And that just caused me to really reevaluate my, my life and also just to really For the first time ever really in my career put fulfillment first like you know there's a lot of times when you do start your career that you are looking to make money nothing wrong with that (laughs) and sometimes you make decisions based off of that as to what can be more profitable and so I think we should all do a um um not a reality check what's the word a self-check on our career especially as we've been in our careers for a while to say hey Maybe I want to, I really want to do this. Why don't I try doing that? And that's easier said than done because a lot of times we're in our zone and we've been building our careers, whatever some of the formulas we have are helping us make money and and support our livelihoods. But when you have things happen in your life, like death or even sometimes life, you know, some people, they have children, it changes them. Or if you lose people, that can also just cause you to... evaluate things and so that's what a lot of it was about and it was about wanting to give back and also you know after my uh, dad had passed I had to you know support my mom help my mom be there for her and some of my other family members and it I just needed more flexibility and in that time I wanted to figure out since I'm here (laughs) let me try to figure out where I want to go um, while I'm at, as long as I stop at the side of the road of life, so to speak. And so that's where a lot of that stemmed from. So I was very passionate about, still am, data literacy, you know, having been in corporate, having to do all those PowerPoints, <laughs> having to tell all those stories. I really wanted other people like us in the data universe to like understand that we have to kind of know our audience, we have to kind of do things. And then also, I was also intentional for me about helping underserved communities because I've seen so many people just not know what they want to do. And especially now after the pandemic, that kind of extends to almost everyone, young people. And it's just like, so I just want to give back. So that's where a lot of that came from. And just trying to find my niche or just, if there was an opportunity to help out or collaborate, I just took it because I felt that it would keep my skills sharp and it would also just help me explore other areas.
0: I think that's a really great perspective, like in terms of trying new things and seeing, you know, trying on these different hats and seeing what feels right for you. And, you know, also what you're looking to get out of it. I mean, obviously a lot of stuff we do because it's for us. Sometimes we do stuff for others. Sometimes it's mutually beneficial. And it's like oftentimes it's like it's that spot in the middle where it's like you feel like you're getting something out of it and you're also giving something back to others that is sort of the most edifying and where you see the most personal growth. It's really interesting. Like so many times you find that your own greatest growth can come from facilitating someone else's like it's counterintuitive. You would think like the more I focus on me, the better I'm going to be. But like, you know, like if you were in a 12 step program, for example, like one of the big things about that is, okay, you've worked your way through the 12 steps, which you're never going to be done. You're going to do that for the rest of your life. Now, you help someone else work through the 12 steps. And in doing that, you're re-experiencing this like much like if you were to teach someone else data viz, you're reinforcing a lot of what you've learned before. You're going to learn a lot of new stuff because you're now having to teach it to someone else. And you're going to feel a lot of the excitement and stuff all over again for the first time by helping someone else, you know, get it, you know, like when, when someone else, like it kind of clicks for them and, And either they discover the thing they're into or they make a breakthrough. It feels great. Like celebrating other people's victories is selfishly one of the most fun things in the world, but it's counterintuitive because it feels like, well, that's not my victory. Like I want a thing.
1: Yeah. And it takes to, but you know, I've found this happened, this not at this intensity, but earlier in my life, I had also was doing some soul searching and I realized like you said, it's kind of intuitive, but when you put the focus on off yourself, it helps you kind of figure out, you know, what you want to do or what makes you click, um, giving back like this, you I know, mean, there's different ways of giving back, but, you know, giving of your time or just giving, you know, investing in a personal cause you may have. I mean, a lot of times it does help you take stock of who you are and, oh, I kind of like this. So, oh, you know, you take a few risks. And I think these are things that you can do in general. I mean, they always tell you it's never too late and that's true, but I do feel like sometimes you have to know yourself. You have to know what time you're in. You have to know the level of risk you're willing to take and you have to really assess like, um, all right, should I, I be doing this right now? Cause you know, we all have different paths. You know, some of us, we have families, some of us, you know, we may not have, the option to be on the side of the road, you know, dabbling with comics or with art. But at the same time, life is so short, you know, that you should at least try or try to find a way to make it happen. You know, even if it's 30 minutes, you know, you can still do your nine to five, let's say, if you're talking about careers, but you can do 30 minutes on doing something that you normally don't do a day or maybe a week and just see where that takes you
0: what's like the difference between vocation and avocation, right? Like, and I think so vocation is what makes my money and avocation is what's the thing I really care about. And if you can make them both happen together, that's great. But honestly, that's usually the exception in life versus the rule, right? Like we've got something that is going to be the thing that pays for my food and puts my kids through their insanely expensive dyslexia school and then you've got the thing that's like the thing that really excites you and sustains you and I'm fortunate that with my job I get to do a lot of the stuff I like at work so I get to build stuff I get to mentor I get to help others level up a bit what I don't like to do is I really don't want to be someone's manager where I'm in charge of parsing out other assignments and writing their reviews and you know, interfacing on the behalf of the client for them and stuff like that. Like I've got, I've got that, that on my own. I don't, I don't want that. But what I don't get to do at work as much is I like to give pep talks. I like to be the Tony Robbins of data, right? Like I gave my, I gave a talk at the Tableau conference for 40 minutes about how you can level yourself up and get excited about learning by finding fun ways to do it. And the thing is for like folks like you and me, we're not the audience for my talks, like most of our peers that we interact with online would hear one of my presentations and be like, this is absolute fluff and nonsense. Like, where's the technical skills? And I'm so much about like the soft skill and the technical skill and how the two complement each other. Because if you're not able to, you know, for one thing, get good at communicating and talking with people and also investing in yourself, because it's oftentimes other people aren't going to do it for you. Like they're not going to give you the path forward. You have to be yeah. curious and be willing to experiment and take some risks and put yourself out there. And that's going to be different for every single person and understanding that, you know, not only is this your responsibility, it's also your privilege. Like you get to do this. Like you like no one's no one's going to tell you to do this. Like it's it's just implied in life. Like, oh, you you want to like get better at this? Go do whatever you need to do to do that.
1: Yeah, you're right. And I, you know, I was very, again, intentional. We talked earlier about personas and I didn't want to be the tips and tricks person. Like nothing against the tips and tricks person. It's just, there's so many people out there doing them already. And I wanted to differentiate. And I really felt that there was need, like you were talking about with the soft skills, like data storytelling. A lot of people in this space, they find the storytelling piece fluffy. I think it's becoming more serious. People are getting it. We need that piece. But in the beginning, when I started It's like, oh, but why do we really need this? I just need to be able to like whatever tool, you know, or like, and it's like you said, if you can't communicate your idea, no one's going to listen. Like you can have the greatest like theory or whatever, but if you can't get it marketed or you can't get people to listen or come to it, like, you know, a lot of times in our space, we have this build it and they will come model model, and it's like, no, you got to, you gotta bring people to the, you know, you gotta kind of bring people to it. People are not gonna just run to it because you built it. Um, so that's why, you know, when I did stuff, I wanted to make that connection behind the storytelling or the fact that some of our peers who may not be as data centric can also be part of this as well. Like, you know, a lot of times, especially in the business world, our business constituents, they are the ones who bring the context. And, you know, like that helps drive what a lot of us may report on, what a lot of us may visualize. Now, I will say that there are two, I feel like there's a few branches with data visualization. Like there is some of it that is more artistic and more of us, like us being connoisseurs of this space, we can kind of ooh and ah and marvel <laughs> off of some of it. But then a lot of us in our day jobs, you know, we can't bring the artistic ones to the table. We have to kind of bring a more, I guess, strategic or business-centric Like, you know, the line charts, the trends with the annotations. But I mean, both are important. And so but I think people need to just make more of that connection. So,
0: yeah, it's uh, the interesting thing with like a sort of something you're you know, what we often do online is we're doing stuff on our initiative, right? Where we come up with a project or there's a community thing and you run off and you make something. You're making stuff without the audience, right? Like we're doing it for ourselves. It's either uh, an exercise in self-improvement or an artistic expression or what have you. But when you're doing something in context of a client, whatever that client may be, right? We're using the term client as the person that wants the thing. Even though they're the one that asked for the thing, you still have to sell the thing back to them. Like they asked for it. And now not only do you have to make it, you have to make them want the thing they said they wanted right you have to make it in such a way not just how you've built it but how you communicate it back to them how you deliver it to them how you launch it to them how you teach them about it whatever your process is like whatever your business is and we're using business loosely too here like whatever mm-hmm. why why you're making the thing just because someone said they wanted the thing doesn't mean they'll ever actually use it when you give it to them unless you make them want to yeah So, yeah, that's like people can tell you they want a Barbie movie all day long and you can make the Barbie movie and no one could go see it. Like, obviously, that didn't happen with Barbie. But think how many things that has happened with where there's been
1: huge. G.I. Joe. Joe.
0: (laughs) They made two G.I. Joe movies. They even put The Rock in the second one. And there was no third G.I. Joe movie.
1: Yeah, they need to reboot it. G.I. Joe needs to be not the campy. I know it was campy in the cartoons, but they need to make a really dark spy thriller type G.I. Joe movie.
0: I'm going to blow your mind here. There is a dark spy thriller G.I. Joe comic starring Chuckles, the guy in the Hawaiian shirt. Uh. (laughs) So, yeah, it was it was made by like like a a indie comic producer, IDW. They got their hands the G.I. Joe license and they were talking with like what Hasbro and uh, and and Hasbro's like we really want you to go dark and edgy with this, and it's like okay, well, how about Chuckles is undercover in Cobra, and we ha- and he has to execute one of his own Joes in the first few pages to prove that he's he's actually defecting. They're like perfect, and it's oh, like yeah. so yeah, there 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 there's that out there if if you uh, if you need that in your life, but yeah, it's I mean again, like just because someone says they want something doesn't mean like you you not only have to make it in such a way that it's good but you then have to market it back to them and i think we've seen marketing with the barbenheimer effect you know we're, we're dipping back into movies for a second but it's not enough to just make a great movie i've seen plenty of great movies that i never heard of like it yeah. was never properly sold to me and it's like i was i was just watching um last night a movie called spider head a a thriller starring Chris Hemsworth and Miles Teller, directed by the director of Top Gun Maverick, released last year, and I've never heard of it.
1: And mm-hmm. I was watching
0: this, and I'm like, this is a fun thriller. I wish I'd known about this movie. Never knew about it. So it's not enough to make the thing. Like, obviously, there's demand here for me, because, like, I, th- mm-hmm. I like these actors. I like this director. I like thrillers. But you never properly sold it to me. So, you know, you missed out.
1: Yeah, and that's the same thing with a lot of our work. I mean, we've all been there where we have done these. I've had colleagues talk about these great dashboards they've done, or you were asked to like to derive some insights off of a loyalty program. And because you know some of the cases from both of those scenarios, you may have gotten really artistic or technical with your visualizations. You lost the audience. And sometimes because you didn't just call out, like you were saying, you have to market this movie. Not only make a great movie, but tell everyone why it's a great movie. And so you know you have to really call out your trends. You have to really be able to know your audience. Which if there's anything that we can take, if I can give to anyone in here, in life and in their career, know your audience. <laughs> it will you know like we used to say back in my back in my digital marketing days, an impactful like. You know, an impactful message is a, a relative message is an impactful message. And so you have to really know your audience. Yeah.
0: I mean, it, it's so true. If we're, we're talking in the context of, you know, BI, business, business dashboards, data tools, whatever whatever your thing is, when you're gathering requirements from someone and they start throwing at you technical terms, charts that they want, stuff like that, you need to tell them to slow their role and be like, who's this for? Like, who who's the, who's the, describe the user. Like, what's their role? What questions do they need to answer? What actions do they need to perform? Like, these are the things that we need to think about long before we start talking about what kind of colors they like, um, the paddings of various things on the data. Like, all of that is a lot of the downstream stuff that it's real easy for us to get nerdy about, because if you're in this field at all, obviously... You're kind of a techie nerd like you like tweaking stuff and and messing around with it like you wouldn't have gotten here if if that weren't part of who you are. But the, the more important part is if you can understand this person or persons or whoever it needs to be for and understand their level of experience, their level of comfort, you know, what are their concerns like do they do they even know how to use a dashboard like do you need to bake in some kind of tutorial to help them understand or refresh them if they only look at it every six months like these are the kinds of things that by asking like questions about people and concepts up front and a lot of this comes from me being like a so i started off as like a programmer and then i became like I think I was called a business analyst or something. I don't know. There's lots of titles for that.
1: Yeah, but in I this was right, that one. I used to yeah. be that one. Gonna... <laughs>
0: so you're you're the person that you understand the technical and you understand the customer and your job is to be in the middle and translate things into a language that they can both understand. And it's, yeah. it's, it's like the guy in office space who's going on the rant about how he's a people person. I have a people person. You know, it's like, but like for real, that's what your job actually is. And it's so funny because when I was in that job there was a back where I used when I used to work at Saint Jude there was a um, a guy that was the, in charge of the center of excellence and analytics that was his job and his name was Tom and um when uh, I intru- when I met Tom for the first time I had been working there like 5 years I'd been a business analyst about a year he asked me what do you do what, what's your thing what do you do like and I'm like well I'm, I'm a business analyst I I understand both the technical and the communicative and I can communicate between the developer and the you know, and the business people. And he's like, what good is that? And it's like, unsurprisingly, (laughs) Tom wasn't around like too terribly much longer after that. Because if you don't understand that that's important, because it's, there are so many technical people that don't know how to communicate the technical in a way that's, that non-technical people can understand. And there's so many non-technical people that don't understand enough of the technical to communicate what they need. So it's useful to and I mean, a lot of people wear multiple hats, really, like so many people that, you know, have to do more than one of these jobs at a time. But that's that's the importance of being able to translate difficult technical ideas into common, (laughs) into normal words we all understand and also communicate those business needs the person that only understands the ones and zeros
1: yeah and that's something i've always aspired to be you know and i it looks like you in the beginning it was like why do we need that you need to keep you know keep brushed up on like at one point it was your excel macros or your SQL or your python or and nothing is wrong with that you know i think there's a difference between data wranglers and data analysts and i do think that some of us in the Field, it is a little unfair because you did maybe go to school to be that technical person. And a lot of organizations want you to be everything. Yeah. <laughs> like, especially now, they want you to be the programmer, the analyst, the storyteller, the slide maker, the dashboard builder. And it's like a lot of us didn't really sign up for all that, you know? And it's a legitimate gripe. But at the same time, know a little bit of it. You don't have to be, a, you know, like an expert in all of those because i don't think anyone really can be an expert in all of those roles but you can know enough to be able to talk to people and then maybe guide them down to someone who little, who is a little bit more in depth in depth with let's say the storytelling piece or the insights piece Or so the person who you really need to help wrangle your unruly data <laughs> you know so but yeah
0: i think that's a great point and i think like I think getting experience in a lot of those different cross sections can be really helpful even if you don't need them for your current role or they're not something you're interested in because you might find out for one thing you're good at it or you like it or it's something you want to learn more about but also you might need it someday so there's lots of stuff where I had some various jobs in the past and some of them were a lot more difficult than others or some of them were a lot more hands on or a lot more like brute force and you know, by suffering through some of those things that I really did not like doing or wasn't good at, when I yeah. encounter similar things now, I can cut through problems a lot quicker because I went through a period of difficulty where I had to work on something a lot harder.
1: Yeah. And I always say it's good to be able to talk about, you want to be able to be able to talk about something at a dinner party or a happy hour. You don't have to, be, you know, necessarily be an expert at everything. Um, and also to your point, when you do try to figure out what you want to do and what you don't want to do, it's good to kind of jump in trying all these little different things.
0: Yeah. I would say that one of my big pieces of career advice for people um, is to not be afraid and not be afraid of failing, not being afraid of struggling. I think so, so much of life is understanding that you're not always going to be the best or immediately be good at things even. And yeah, yeah, trying stuff.
1: I know, but it's hard because as a recovering perfectionist, you know, hi, my name is Alan. Uh, I'm recovering. You know, it's hard because you are afraid to make a mistake. And it's so, I don't want to say dumb, but it is like, why do we do that to ourselves? I wish someone would have told me that when I was younger, I would have taken more risks. But, you know, I can still take some risk now. But yeah, I would tell people who are starting out, try it. It's not, it's okay. You don't have to know from grade school that you're going to be a a doctor or a lawyer now maybe in those professions you do need to know that but there are other professions where you don't have to know that you don't have to know what your destiny
0: (laughs) you know i i just finished reading a book called tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and it's uh it's a story of two friends told back and forth from their perspectives across like i don't know like 25 to 30 years of their lives and it's it goes from like the late 80s through the 2000s and they're a, a guy and a girl and they have different directions in school and they both like video games and ultimately become game designers but it's really about their friendship but something in the book that I thought was really interesting was uh, one of the characters said fail better and I was thinking about this and it's like yeah like learning how to get good at failing how to fail well like how to rebound from failure, how to synthesize, like, why did I fail? Um, to understand that failing at a task is not you failing as a person. Like there's a lot of healthy things that we can learn and take from failures. And also to understand that, you know, um, I talk about, you know, free economics was so influential to me and the idea yeah. of quitting and that sometimes like, especially I, I think in America, we we think of quitting as like, oh, so you're just going to quit, you loser. And it's like, no, it's like some we only have so much capacity to do stuff in our lives. And if there's something that really isn't serving you or you just know that you're never going to be good at or that you don't enjoy and you decide to not do that in favor of something else that could be more productive or could be more like personally edifying, that's not a loss like. That's that's you being realistic with yourself, like uh, measuring like what matters to you in life and pivoting towards something maybe better.
1: Yeah. And, then, you know, and the plus and the same side just to help, you know, not that it, what the, what you're saying is negative, but it's, it's not in any means necessary. But just something also more encouraging. If there is something that you like or something that you're good at, it will come back it will show up <laughs> different. You know, one example for me is my ability to, you know, be a trainer or a teacher. Like, it was funny after, you know, this, all the introspection I've done, I realized, I remember my mom, my dad told my mom that she always wanted to be a teacher. And so people have always said it to me and I never really went out to officially become one, but even in my roles, I was the trainer, or I was the evangelist. And it was like, You know, so for people who may sometimes feel like, oh, I missed a boat on this, or oh, I should have done this in school, it will find a way. Like, if you're supposed to be doing something, it will manifest in a way that may not be traditional. Like, yeah, I didn't do the traditional professor route or teacher route, but I ended up still being in places where I was training people, teaching people. Now I am an adjunct professor. um, And I just say that as an encouragement as well. Like there may be something that is not your main thing right now in your life or career, but if it is something that you want to do, it will, opportunities for it, for you to do it will pop up. You just have to make sure you grab them if it's, if you have the time and if it's important enough for you.
0: To, yeah. I think, I think tenacity is one of the most important, you know, <laughs> skills you can develop and flex, you know, that, that grit, that the willingness and determination to, You know keep going because it's like so much of life is my lowest points in my career oftentimes coincided with me just sort of feeling uh hopeless and lost and not knowing the direction forward and if me now had been able to talk to me then i would have been like well what could you try differently to look at and find some excitement you know what could you do to find something that you enjoy about this and get really good at that thing you know um, and I, I, think like you're talking about teaching at one point, I thought about going back to get my doctorate because I've always liked the idea of teaching, but then I found so many opportunities to teach without needing to, like, I found programs like women in technology. Like I found, uh, getting to talk and present to tugs and stuff. It's, you know, if you want to do something, oftentimes, uh, the traditional way that you've thought about it might not be the only way to get there.
1: Right. No, so true. It's, you know, it's, and sometimes the traditional route may not have been for you to begin with. Like, you know, there's some people out here and I know a lot of times the professions, people get all a little way about accreditations, but sometimes we do need people who are more, who can add some innovation or it can maybe, you know, disrupt the model a little bit. I know that's buzzwordy, but it's true, you know, um, with education, even with our field of data, you're like, there's different, approaches to it there's so many different paths to it I I, you know if you and I really had a chance to speak about our paths to data I do remember we've talked about it a little bit in the past we definitely have similarities but it's not exactly the same path you know and everyone has different ways into this there are people who had no technical backgrounds at all who found their way here so it's like um I think people need to also just not get too caught up and what they think is the way to do, so, to do something so
0: yeah i think that's i think that's a really good perspective like there may be a way and that may not be your way like there may be a different way for you to accomplish this or create your own version of it and just understanding that in life outside of things that get you arrested there's really not that many gatekeepers to you personally like you know, yeah. reinventing yourself, learning new things and becoming a better, happier, more fulfilled, more skilled version of yourself. Um, so with that, I was going to ask, Alan, as we're wrapping up, is there anything you want to shout out or promote or anything along those lines?
1: Uh wow. Our time is up already. I really enjoyed talking to you. Um, let me see. Things that I've been doing. A lot of the Du Bois challenge is definitely growing. It's always out there. I encourage people to follow that. Um I am working on doing so doing something a little different with it. Is I call it color therapy. Um, Anthony uh Starks, who's on our team, he created a coloring book for the Du Bois Challenge. So we're looking into ways to have sessions where people can reflect and color on these visualizations. So that's coming down the pike. Um what else is out there? Um I would just say to continue following me and just, and I'm sure I'm going to think about 500 things after we talk, but, uh, <laughs> but, but that's kind of one of the things that's on my mind. Um, yeah. Just continue following me. I'm You can definitely find me. I'm still on that app that everyone thinks is going away at uh, at Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Al, A-L, Dataviz guy. Um, you can definitely follow me on LinkedIn and um you know, I'm dropping, oh, definitely follow Be Data Lit. I've dropped a few uh, articles recently on disrupting the education model, how one of my professors um, is leveraging data to help with school retention. So just being able to kind of see, you know, who may need extra help. So definitely a lot of things I'm writing about, talking about. Um, so definitely give me a follow
0: fabulous uh if you're if you're listening and you enjoyed this conversation either the first and or second half of it uh make sure to check out alan all over the socials
1: are you keeping both halves of this
0: i'm keeping both. this is all going in man
1: oh good good because i know we started out with our movies but i think it was great hopefully everyone loves it too um and maybe you can bring me back
0: <laughs> i look i i would absolutely love to and thanks for coming today
1: thanks, Zach.